Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Hello and welcome to Take Line. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion. A great show this week with Lindsay on the pod today. It's so great to have you here today with uh, opening day just around the corner. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity to talk about uh, just what's going on with the state of the game right now. Um, coming off of, a, you know, a lockout. Um, what does Lindsay Adler and MLB's Mike Petriello think of the state of baseball in 2022. And then we'll be talking to the undefeated Jesse Washington about uh, a podcast that he has coming out as part of ESPN's package for uh, Jackie Robinson's 75th anniversary of integrating baseball. Lindsay, I, I actually daydream about getting signed by the Yankees and then deciding not to cut my hair just to see what they would do. What are they going to do? I think it's legitimately a First Amendment issue. Like, no bullshit. Like, I think if you really want, if you really wanted to go to the mat with it, it's a, you'd just be like, it's a First Amendment issue. It's my right to express myself via my hair. Yeah. But the issue is, like, some of, some of these guys get so horny for the Yankees thing. Right. The thing, the, the the pinstripes and the no name on the back and the mystique and the whole thing, the legacy of the entire thing back to the you know, nineteen twenty seven, the whole thing. Yeah. They they say they, so they they come they come here and they say things like first class organization. Yeah, they love to say. I'm like, it. oh, first class organization. Okay, well, <laughs> you can still have a beard and be a first class organization. <laughs> like, I mean, like I know. I have like, you know, Yankee friend, uh, Yankee fan friends whose families like argue bitterly about names on the back of the jerseys, like how, oh, that's, that's not legit. What What is that you're wearing with the name on the back? And I, like, it's like, what are you, you what's know, I wrong mean, with you? Like, <laughs> I, can. I, like, I, I respect people who are insane purists because in right. some ways I can be, but it's like the, the amount of money a replica jersey costs right. is, uh, I, I can't fault anyone Stag- for wearing yeah. a Judge 99 jersey because they should not be paying the cost of money that it takes to get, you know, the replica. Like, I remember even a couple of years ago, we were in Anaheim and CC Sabathia went to the team store to like buy a Mike Trout jersey or whatever. And he came into the clubhouse. He was like, 350 fucking dollars for this. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was something crazy. And I was like, even CC is complaining. You know, you're right, Lindsay. And I think it's something, you know, it's a lot like the debates about 
you know, like student loan forgiveness or, you know, what, or like mm -hmm. paid internships. It's like, oh, I came up that way. Mm -hmm. And that's how it should be. You should be tough enough to like, that's the Yankee way. And, it, and somehow any kind of like progress or change is, would, would demean the legacy of the Yankees in some meaningful way. And it's like, it's just really funny to me. Fucking Yankees, man. Like, I, I just, I just don't think the players can escape it because there are just always yeah. people to throw back at that, at them, you know, like Derek Jeter would never do that. Right. And it's like, Derek Jeter was like a fucking like dog, man. Yeah, he was a scumbag. You know, yeah, Derek, he just, yeah, he right. just, he just kept it all, you know, but it's like, yeah. there's so many things, you know, like. Derek like, Jeter would, would yeah, never you know, grow his hair out. He would give gift baskets to his to his various <laughs> conquests, but that but he wouldn't grow his hair out. There are just like yeah, there are just so many people who not like even beyond Jeter who have sort of like fit this very old idea of decorum. You know, right. I mean, we're we're talking about like the 1950s here. Like yeah. what I think is interesting is like a lot of the cultural stuff like has changed. Like the players have loosened up a lot and like yeah. the league has loosened up on letting them, you know, wear like cleats or colors or whatnot. And like, you know, you, you do see some like cool shit on the field now. Part of the problem is like the people watching the sport don't know what the fuck those shoes are. So yeah. like, I think you know. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you can really like make the style like a cool thing when nobody knows what they're looking at. Because like I go into the clubhouse, you know, and I see these guys with, you know, their Jordan deals or whatever. And I talk to them and I'm like, oh shit, like those are great. You know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, like other people will ask me like, what are those and why do they cost so much? And, and yeah, like when you explain sneakers to people who don't care about them, you sound like truly nuts, you know, and it's easy for them to say like, okay, well they get them for free. So I get it. But it's like, even like the cool things about ball players, like most of their fans don't understand cool. Mm, yeah. I always ask any of my like hardcore uh, baseball people this, but it's, you know, baseball to me, it's by kind of nature, the most conservative, least progressive sport. And I think mm -hmm. it's a victim of its own success in that, in that regard. It, it rode, high for so long that there was no reason to really change anything. Um, that said, it, it feels like we've reached a point where there have been so many small changes that have kind of been left to the side because of this like natural inclination to like kind of like not tweak stuff mm -hmm. that now it feels like the sport is in a place where a lot of stuff needs to change kind of like more quickly than would then would be natural to be like non-disruptive, like whether it's various changes to the structure of the sport with uh, trying to, you know, uh, pitch clock, uh, the robo-umps, et cetera, stuff like that, uh, the expanded playoffs and uh, stuff they're doing now. And that's on top of these kind of more, you know, issues more about marketing and framing the sport mm -hmm. in a way that is exciting and reaching uh, younger demographics where they are naturally on social media, on the internet. It feels like all this stuff needs to like happen mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So what would you do? Like if Lindsay Adler is put in charge of baseball, mm -hmm. what is your plan of attack to kind of like tackle some of this stuff? Like what is, what are, baseline stuff that you would you you would enact you know i've i've really become a person who does think that there are 
probably rule changes or just things to change the aesthetics of the actual game that probably need to happen. You know, for for a big dork like me, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to watch the game no matter what. You know, like strikeouts are interesting to me because I spend all of my time talking to people about pitch sequencing and design. But like I understand, you know, for most people watching at home, you know, seeing 14 strikeouts in a game is probably <laughs> yeah. not as interesting to them as it is to me. But also like the fundamental issue is like they have so many great and cool players now, like truly like cool and interesting yeah, players really who cool. play with style. And so, you know, you, you get, you get one at bat from Ronald Acuna every, you know, couple of innings and you have to sit through a game mm. that is aesthetically very void of action at a time when something like the NBA is very, you know, there's yeah pace, 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 move, move, pace, yeah. ball movement, you know, big threes, whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the issue on why players are not more famous falls to both parties here. You know, like, I think about this a lot. Like, who is the transcendent ball player, the the ball player celebrity? It's it, it's Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. You know? Right, and, for right now? To me, this is the most fascinating thing to talk about regarding baseball. I, I think that the average the average person who watches television and checks in on sports kind of which is to say like the average American, I would bet Mike Trout has like the lowest facial recognition mm-hmm. amongst that fan of any of the top stars in any of their sports, not even like hockey aside, football, baseball, basketball. And Mike Trout is like a god. Mm-hmm. Why is that the case? So, you know, it's it's interesting I think I think it's a number of things. Like it's it's just not Trout's personality. That's um, true. Yeah. To put himself out there, and it's not. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that, like, yes, he's he's the best player in the game. He has been for about a decade now. He plays in baseball purgatory, you know, for a team that keeps pretending that they're going to improve, <laughs> but then they Go finish on. it, you know, seventy-eight wins every year. I mean, it's so. Fr- and so there's actually this like phenomenon where like. People who wanted um, people to appreciate Mike Trout have made Mike Trout famous for not being famous. You know, it's like he has so many cheerleaders. He has Major League Baseball, like trying to pump him up when they can. You know, he has writers, you know, like there are writers I know who, you know, there's one writer I know who like every Monday he tweets some like Mike Trout baseball reference stat there. You know, the players talk about him constantly. There are so many people who have been invested in, you know, giving Mike Trout this public profile that he would never seek for himself. And there's there's a lot of blame to go around on ballplayers not being more famous. Like Major League Baseball, like has not historically done a great job of that. But also they can't get cooperation with players. Like the players play 162 games. They don't want to spend their off time, you know, doing things, you know, on behalf of Major League Baseball for no additional compensation. And over the last five years, since the last five, six years since the last CBA until this new CBA, the the trust between players and owners, it's and and the league, it's just degraded. Yeah, all time you know, low. there there are so many players who would not who who just do not want to help Major League Baseball do a job that they feel that Major League Baseball should be doing. And so what's interesting to me about the Mike Trout dilemma is that like at this point, baseball doesn't need Mike Trout to be that guy. 
baseball has Shohei Otani. Baseball has, you know, Vladimir, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Baseball has Fernando Tatis, um, Bryce Harper. And so does Mike Trout need to be the guy at this point? I don't think so because there's a lot of like interesting players elsewhere and you do see baseball really trying to push a lot of those guys, but it is just a sport where individuality is, I mean, you, you really get knocked out, knocked on your ass if you, if you kind of step out of line and also like just the, you know, when I think about like the things that the NBA does to make these players stand out you know you have all of these like hallway shots and whatnot like you're you're just you're just I don't I don't know how to make players interesting I think that part of it it, when I said that I think the baseball to a certain extent is a victim of of the many decades of success that it had Mm -hmm. what I mean is like the NBA because they were like distant sixth, mm-hmm. seventh, not like behind boxing, behind horse racing, behind any number of sports in the early days of, of, uh, the, that the existence of the NBA, they had to market their sport differently than football, baseball, boxing, et cetera. And they had to focus on the stars. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. like a famous, uh, photograph of, uh, the George Mikan Lakers, the Minneapolis Lakers at the time playing, who was, he was the biggest star at the time. Uh, playing the Knicks, and it just said Mike and versus Knicks, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the marquee of the old Madison Square Garden. So I think a lot of that is like carryover from the way the NBA has kind of always done it. And then there was the structural things. There's less players on the field, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. You can see them better, smaller court, et cetera. Um, but I do think that some of that is a holdover from, you know, just the way it's like – NBA has always been more progressive because they had to play catch up. And now Mm -hmm. because MLB was so successful for so, I mean, the the dominant sport for like a hundred years, it really grew up in a, in a really fundamental way with the country, like, you know, with roots in the, in the civil war, et cetera, that I just think it's harder to change the course of that ship Mm -hmm. because it's just not in the DNA to change stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what rules I would necessarily change, but I I think one fallacy that I see a lot, you know, is like people who um, I think see themselves as traditionalists and are like, you know, you can't change these fundamental things about baseball. You can't make the, you can't make the bases bigger. This is a sport without (laughs) a clock. We can't add a pitch clock. It's all of, you know, protesting a lot of these things that, yeah, honestly, sometimes when the league suggests them, they seem radical to me as well. But then what's getting ignored is that, is that the game has changed. The game has completely changed, you know, the, the way that something like, you know, velocity and strikeouts, the way that those things are valued. Of course, players are going to take 45 seconds on the mound between each pitch because their ability to get paid depends on their ability to execute every single freaking pitch that they throw. So the sport has changed. It's just done. So, um, as, as a result of data and technology and front offices and not necessarily being steered by the alleged governing body of the league. Let me reframe then the question. Let's put actual rule changes to the side for a second. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the the problems that baseball needs to solve? Access, mm. access. I mean, and I think they are trying to solve this. They're, 
looking at a number of different distribution opportunities. But at the end of the day, it still costs a shit ton of money to take your children to a ball game. And minor league baseball is contracting. And there are just so many different things that are competing for a person's time and especially a young person's time. Yeah. Um, that, you, you know, I think one thing, you know, we keep going back to the NBA here, but like, you know, the NBA has been pretty dang generous with the way people use their highlights and their big moments. Yeah, that's it's been big. That's cha- I will say they're tightening up yes. of late. Yes. But they have been over the years much more open-handed than the NFL and MLB. Much more. Yeah, and and I remember Adam Silver saying things like, you know, like why would we care? That's free marketing. Well, eventually yeah. your rights holders care, but yeah. you know, the, the number of times <laughs> In the last two years leading up to the CBA negotiations in baseball that I heard players, you know, reference something or anything Adam Silver has said, it's just like this like psychic obsession with the way that Adam Silver has run the NBA, which is, it, it's not really apples to apples, but baseball just needs to find a way to put itself in front of people in a way that cannot be ignored anymore. Um, and I don't, I don't know how they do that, but they, they, they need to put their product in your face. Bum, ba, da, 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 da. MLB kicks off Thursday, 1 p.m. in the Bronx when the Yankees take on the Red Sox. You know what it is. You know about that rivalry. You've heard all about it. Uh, to help us to, uh, to just talk about baseball, to get smarter about baseball, to learn about baseball, is Mike Petriello, senior writer, analyst at MLB.com, co-host of the MLB Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Ballpark Dimensions, a bugaboo of mine. Mike, welcome to Take Line. It's a bugaboo, a good thing? I hope so. Uh, thank you. It is. I just, uh, it, how can how can the ballparks be different sizes? What are we doing? Should uh, they be the same you can't go into like an NBA arena and have like one uh, basket is 11 feet and the other one is nine feet. Like it's just got to be th- the same. No, it's beautiful. Listen, the Orioles <laughs> changed their ballpark this year to be more neutral and it makes me mad. I want them to be weird. Weird is good. Uh, okay. A simple question to begin with. Uh, we're about to embark on uh, this new season. How thankful are you that we aren't experiencing a, a second shortened season in three years? Oh, extremely thankful. I mean, primarily as a baseball fan for my whole life, uh, raising a baseball fan and as someone who derives 100% of my income from baseball, (laughs) I could could not be happier. I've I've told this story before. Ryan's maybe heard me say this already, but, you know, like three days after the lockout ended, you know, and free agency starting and trade starting and everything's getting in motion and my phone's ringing again. My wife turns to me and she says, hey, you don't seem as miserable today as you've been for the last like two months. And I'm like, yes, 100% true. (laughs) Um, Mike, so the way I see your job, you're kind of, you know, one of the guys who is tasked with bridging the information gap between, you know, the data and information that clubs and the league receive through StatCast and the way fans understand and interpret that information in, you know, in terms of viewing their favorite players or their favorite team. I'm curious if you were just a baseball fan, not not who you are, um, if you were like a casual baseball fan watching the game right now, would you have any idea what's going on or how decisions are made? 
I would if I was watching one of the better broadcasts that would explain that to you. And I, <laughs> which okay. which ones would those be? Oh well, I, I'm not going to name names. Listen, there, <laughs> there are 30 broadcast teams, right? You know, more than that if you include mm -hmm. radio, but just on TV. And then there's a handful of national broadcasts, and some of them do a really, really fantastic job. Like I'll name names, and I'm biased because I'm friends with most of these people, right? Like Jason Benetti and Len Casper in Chicago and Book Shambi also in Chicago, you know, a couple other people like that. They do a really fantastic job. Uh, there's some others that, you know, maybe either ignore it or actively trash on it, which I think is a shame because you don't have to love the math. You don't have to love the numbers. But if you want to understand why teams are doing things, I do think that's important. It's incumbent on the broadcast to explain those things. You know, you don't need to know all of the like really complicated math that goes into this. But if you're being told that a guy is a bad hitter because he hits 230, well, we know that's not true. We know that's not how the teams are choosing to play or pay these guys. And I feel like if I'm just picking up a game for the first time, somebody should be explaining these things to me in a, in a way that's accessible, hopefully. On that topic, I think, you know, one of the uh, points of contention with the way uh, NBA games are uh, are broadcast nationally uh, amongst NBA fans, a, a point of annoyance, I think, is... You know, uh, you watch the Thursday TNT game or the Tuesday TNT game and, uh, you know, Shaq and Charles Barkley, a big part of the TNT broadcast, actively hate the way the game is played today. They don't like it. <laughs> you know, like their their position has essentially been like legislated out of the game, although it's been a, a great year for centers. Similarly, as you were saying, uh, you know, baseball has been at the forefront of analytics in sports, right? really at the cutting edge. Um how would you bring that into the broadcast? And you said like in an engaging way, what would you like, how, who does it well? And what is the secret sauce to doing that to, to just getting fans smarter as they watch a game? Well, I think first and foremost is, is finding the beauty in the way baseball has changed. You know, I don't think you have to be Pollyanna about it and pretend that everything is perfect and it's the best day in baseball history every single day because that's not <laughs> true. I, I want to see fewer strikeouts. I want to see more action. I want to see the game move along. I have a, a thousand different ideas of things I would do to improve the game, you know, because I, I think the game has a bright future uh, if some of the changes we make, you know, that we want to make are put into place. But I don't think you can go out there and say, well, back in my day, everything was better. Because No, it wasn't. No, the, 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 <laughs> the athletes today hey, we have in baseball are both just the best that we've ever had, the most talented. Um, the young generation, I feel, is just incredibly interesting. You know, guys like Soto and, and Tatis and, you know, Pete Alonso and on and on and on. Like, they're just really interesting. They're getting better at using social media. You know, so I think we can kind of acknowledge that there are things that we might want to do better, but also acknowledge that, man, like the guys are incredible and everybody is making these decisions, you know, like, you know, why am I putting the shift in place? Because it's weird. Well, I think it'll help me turn baseballs into outs, which I think will help me win games. You know what I mean? And so if you can explain why these things are happening and you can do it in a way that shows that you are both engaged and involved uh, and interested, like Boog Shabby is a great example. Again, he's a friend of mine, so there's a bias, right? He calls me like three times a week asking for help understanding something or explaining something. I, I, as you guys know, I was at a hockey game today and he was texting me like, hey, how do I look up this number? Because he loves it, you know? But you ever watch a broadcast of his? It's not an algebra class. He's not like speaking over your head. He is. He's mixing the stories he tells from like going into the clubhouse and speaking to the players and letting you know a little bit about their lives with what's going on in the field, with what's going on in the clubhouse and doing it all with, the, with a joy. And I think that is like, 
the perfect way that we should be describing baseball to people. Do you feel that there is a tension between baseball as an entertainment product and baseball is a product where at the end of the day, the job is to preserve outs and win games. Yes, absolutely. If, if I'm running a team, if I'm the general manager or the manager, my job is to win games. And if that means I'm going to play the most boring style of baseball that I could possibly come up with and that wins me games, that's I'm going to keep my job. You know, and I think there is a different level of the sport whose job it is not to win games, but to, uh, you know, in, in, innovate and evolve the sport. And that's, you know, the commissioner's office. That is, to some extent, the players union. That's not the people running the teams, making the trades, but the levels above that saying, OK, how can we grow the sport? How can we make it more interesting? And if there are things we don't like that have evolved on the field, like I know lots of people hate the opener, right? Lots of people mm-hmm. hate that starting pitchers don't go deeper. Not everybody. Some people do whatever. But if you think that those are things that are bad for the sport, change the rules. There's really smart people in front offices. They'll figure out something else. And if that's annoying, change that rule too. You know what I mean? There are ways around this, but not for the people on the field. They just need to win. Uh, You mentioned you had a lot of ideas. Lindsay and I were talking about this uh, just before you got on. Would love to hear uh, some of those ideas, Mike. Well, let me preface this by saying, even though I do write for the league's website, I am in my basement (laughs) here and I have very little pull (laughs) towards actually any of these things happening. Um, I I have for years wanted uh the pitch clock to come into being and it sounds like we're getting really close to that i know it's actually been on the books like forever but maybe we'll actually enforce it now that and um limiting the number of pitchers either in a game or on a roster um i think those are the big two things and both of those are are moving you know i think that's really really going to help a lot and i think if we can just dial back pitchers throwing at 120 percent on every single pitch that'll a move the game along and B, um, hopefully put more balls in play. Because the, the one the one issue I have is that when you say, well, I think the game needs to be sped up a little bit, then the uh, the feedback you get is, well, you want less baseball. You must hate baseball. <laughs> it's like, come on, <laughs> I love what baseball. Oh, oh, yeah. I, I just don't need like, you know, a Tuesday night game between the Royals and the Tigers to be four and a half hours long here. So like, can we speed it up? Can we kill some of the dead time? Um, so those are the big two, the pitch clock, limiting pitchers. I, I really think those will help a lot. How do we uh, uh, deal with the velocity issue? Higher mound, uh, shorter distance? What do we do there? Yeah, no, great question. Um, I think lowering the mound would be interesting. Now, a lot of this kind of comes with the unknown of, will it increase pitcher injuries, right? Which is always kind of a concern. But if you go back to like, you know, the when the guys were throwing 300 innings, they weren't throwing every single pitch as hard as they possibly could. You know, they were pacing themselves a little bit, holding something in reserve for later in the game. Nobody does that now. You know, you're expected to come in. Every pitch is the most important pitch you're going to throw. I don't think we can dial back the physical improvements, you know, the the training, the fact that guys actually train with weighted balls to learn to throw hard. You know, for a long time, it was assumed you couldn't learn velocity. And it turns out that's garbage. You absolutely can learn velocity. We're not going to dial that back. But that kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, the pitch clock a little bit. There is some evidence that if you take more time between pitches and you compose yourself and take a deep breath, you can get some velocity there. You know, if we force guys to go pitch, 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 maybe they have to pace themselves a little bit longer, limiting the number of pitchers you can use. Now, if you say, well, I, I'm not going to get lifted after two innings, I kind of need to give my team five innings. Maybe I'm going to pace myself to be able to do that. You know, I, it's it's not going to undo 
the physical gains that these guys are all incredible athletes who are trying to throw hard. Uh, but I think there are rule changes that can hopefully help with that a little bit. You know, Mike, this, this makes me think I was talking to a pitcher the other day who was saying that it's like really weird to, to pitch against the Kansas City Royals right now because they are still running a retro offense. And, you know, when they were when they were very good, it was super dynamic and they and they made it work. But, you know, as they've had some issues, it's like it's like you go out there, you know, you're probably going to give up eight hits and then but it's going to be a total of two runs. Um, so. I'm not sure that I had thought about this previously, but I'm curious, like, so for, for pitchers where they need to throw max effort and max velocity on every pitch, they're, they're pitching to hitters who are trying to make the most out of every hit. You know, we're, we're no longer in an era where guys are settling for singles and we're manufacturing runs. Like these guys are trying to do damage. And so if you throw, you know, either the wrong pitch or, you know, a a 75% pitch, like there's a real chance that thing gets parked on the moon at this point. Like, where do you where do you see the balance between where pitchers are and where hitters are at this point in the game? Yeah, that's a good point because you go back to when all the shortstops looked like Luis Aparicio or <laughs> Ozzie Smith, and they're like mm-hmm. you know, fi- I mean, I don't know how big Ozzie Smith was, but you know, they're like five eight and one hundred and sixty pounds. Mm-hmm. Phil, Phil Rizzuto, right? And yeah. now shortstops are Fernando Tatis and Corey Seager, and you know, everybody in that lineup uh, can crush the ball. So I, I think you're right to some extent. We're not going to go back to that. But I do think that, well, there, there's two answers. One is an answer everybody will hate, which is that if you were to take the baseball and really deaden it and make it harder <laughs> to hit home runs and make it so only that Aaron Judge and Sal Perez and the big boys like that could hit home runs, maybe the guys who are on the lower end of that scale uh, will not think that's the most optimal way for them to proceed. Does anybody in the sport want to talk about changing the properties of the baseball? I I don't think that's a well, conversation that's anyone done. wants to that have. We, 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 that's never been done. Uh, we had no one. That's never happened, has it? <laughs> it's never <laughs> happened. I, I can't do that news cycle again. No. Honestly, you're gonna you're gonna need to come up with it. I've been there, done that. I'm gonna you're gonna need to find a different solution because I'm not dealing with that crap anymore. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, so so that's part of it. And then you can see that they're trying to make some other rule changes around the edges to you know maybe incite stolen bases again, right? Like mm-hmm. changing the the size of the bases. Like I don't know how much I don't know how much impact that's actually going to have, but I like that they're mm-hmm. trying it. I like that they're testing it out. You know, like that's clearly what's on everybody's mind, um, which is how can we dial back the strikeouts? Because what I've really I've learned is strikeouts are cool to watch on TV when you can like gif them and slow them down. But they and you're in the center field camera in HD, right? And they're tough to watch when you're sitting, you know, on the upper deck on the first base side. And it's like, okay, I just want to see an outfielder do something sweet. Um, So, again, we're never going back to 1955 baseball. That is never, ever, ever happening. We know so much more about it. The players are better. The talent base is larger, far more international, obviously. Um, But I I don't think we should try to pretend we should go back to that. I mean, this is a sport that was created by, again, guys who are my height, right? I'm like 5'10 and 150 pounds. Like I would have been an all-star in 1880. Um, The guys guys now are huge. And every, every other sport has made changes to try to, you know, change with the times. As we've talked about, I'm a hockey fan, right? Hockey for me got unwatchable around 2005 or so, right? It was all clutch and grab. And the guys were so much larger on the ice than guys in the 1920s had been. And it just wasn't fun anymore. Well, they made rule changes, right? Uh, They made offense a little easier. Like we all know in football, the, the defense basically is not allowed to play defense anymore, right? 
is that good or bad? I don't know. But it, it, we should not treat this game as though it should be like frozen in amber from when Babe Ruth first stepped on the field. You know, it's a different sport. There are different people. All of it's different. Let's try to evolve with that. All right. So what what do you think Babe Ruth's slash line would be in 2021? <laughs> do you, you know, you know, I'm the one who got Adam out of you know to say that. He could oh, I'm aware. <laughs> and you know. We both know it's true. We both it's know true. it's true. He gets he gets twenty two inches of horizontal break on a slider. <laughs> Babe Ruth was was playing against mechanics. Like, let's be real. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, answer ba- the question. <laughs> oh well, I mean, it's always like a philosophical thing, right? Is it Babe Ruth <laughs> in the DeLorean transported now, or did Babe Ruth grow right. up in the nineties and you know with modern training? No, no, and all we this went stuff. back. Like, yeah, we went DeLorean. back to nineteen. Yeah, we went back to nineteen nineteen, <laughs> and we yep. and we put him in the DeLorean, and we brought mm-hmm. him here. And it, it took it. We we let him. We let him get acclimated, like to the internet and electricity and phones and stuff. And we let that process play out for like a month, two months. So he's not completely shell shocked when he walks into an actual MLB park. And now we're able to bring him in and and start training him up. He wouldn't make the roster. And uh, <laughs> here's the thing: part of it is. In his day, what, you know, what was spring training for, right? It, it was working off the beer weight from the winter. Right, it was, that, right. It was for transitioning to, yeah, to bourbon no, exactly. off of beer. <laughs> the, the, these guys are in shape 365 days a year. And I know you said you let him get acclimated, and I respect that. But uh, not only did he not get on a cross-country flight, not only did he never face a pitcher who wasn't white, he never faced a 95-mile-an-hour slider, right? He faced, he faced pitchers who were probably throwing... 85 to start with and then through 185 pitches every third day you know so no he would get killed in modern baseball just ruined we get him a nutritionist we get him a a trainer we get him on the treadmill we get him doing squats we get him doing uh doing bench presses no no shot (laughs) i mean you know Mike, with with the Ottavino Babe Ruth thing, and then I said something a while ago about like how it's funny that like Cy Young, if transported in today's modern game, would just get shelled. But now, but yeah. you know, we the, the the most prestigious award for pitchers is named after him. I don't personally think that's disrespectful to say right. you know that that Babe Ruth hasn't faced you know a wiffle ball slider, or that Cy Young hasn't faced Aaron Judge or whatever, like. But why do you think there is so much emotion around the idea that like comparing era to era is somehow disrespectful to guys who were very, very good for the eras that they played in? I would be I'd be interested to know if that happens in other sports. Right. I'm not much of a basketball fan, but I know uh, George Mikan. Right. I, he would probably yeah. get ruined by he know, would not LeBron. Make, yeah, he like, would not. <laughs> he would be playing like in the Dominican Republic or something right now. Yeah. He would not even be playing in one Slovenia, of the top 10, right? like a uh, profession. I don't think he'd even make the Slovenian league. He was six ten, so he had decent size. But I mean, it's a good point because when you think about the formative years of the NBA, uh, you know, Lakers, Celtics, and the great Celtics teams that won, you know, like uh, eight out of 10 championships in the 50s and 60s. Those, with, with some very, very rare exceptions, Bill Russell, I think, would have, was, would have had the athleticism and the, and the instincts to, to, I think, play in today's league. But like Bob Cousy of the Celtics couldn't dribble with his left hand. Like he would get absolutely mauled. It would be disgusting if he got out on an NBA court. But... Strangely, 
basketball fans, by and large, don't have the memory that MLB fans have. No one is out here saying like, well, this would be disrespectful to Koozie and the, and the guys. Nobody cares. It, it's in weirdly like very few people think of anything that happened pre 1980. Like for, I think uh, specific to basketball, to NBA basketball, like the, the consciousness of the sport was forged in magic versus bird in the eighties. And anything that happened before that kind of didn't happen. It didn't really, which is sad for me as a Knicks fan. That's when our championships happen. So nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about them. Uh, but, you know, nobody, it's not the same where with MLB, where it's like, you've got to, we've got to draw a through line from these guys that played in 1920 to today. Yeah. What people aren't out there uh, respecting the one title, the Milwaukee Hawks one or, or something <laughs> like that. I, I will say there's an exception, right? Um, Babe Ruth, I don't think would be that good today. I I think Ted Williams would actually be good today. Oh yeah, right? oh, he yeah. he was built yeah. for today's game. I mean, yep. who would have loved like launch angle and exit velocity? Ted Williams yeah. was basically a scientist. So I don't want to say like literally nobody before 1975 could survive today. I don't think that's true. Um, but to your larger point, I I do think that the history of baseball is at the same time um, a huge strength and an enormous weight. Right. Because mm -hmm. as you said, no other sport treasures the history of the game as much as baseball fans do. I mean, we're coming up on like 100 years almost since the 1927 Yankees. And there's Crazy. a lot of baseball fans who could name like three quarters of that lineup off the top of their head. It's really cool that there's so much baseball to go back on. At the same time, you could really be weighed down by that. You know, you you have a lot of people who are saying, I don't want any changes. Baseball has never changed. I hear that all the time when there's a rule change. Baseball has never changed. And I'm like, hold up. First of all, everything before 1947 barely counts in my book. But if you look at all of the other things, the DH, the wild card, you know, the closer, yeah. like all of it, baseball has changed constantly. You want to go back real far. Well, the batter used to be able to tell the pitcher where he wanted the ball to be thrown, and it was thrown underhand. So yeah, baseball has changed a lot, and I don't think we need to be afraid of saying, well, it will continue to change. I mean, it's funny when you look at like, not just like starter workloads from like the sixties and seventies and whatnot, but even like, you know, just the sheer number of pitchers that were used for a team across a full season. And it's like, yeah. it's like eight. Whereas the, the New York Yankees are considering opening the season with 16 pitchers on their roster. Like, yes, actually the game has changed. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it's interesting thinking about like Babe Ruth in today's game versus, you know, how he operated then. You, I mean, you know, what's kind of remarkable about him is, you know, that he had the talent to be such a schlub. Um, whereas <laughs> I watched this, I watched one of those, you know, GQ, you know, 10 essential things videos with Shohei Otani and so enlightening. This dude is taking his own portable icing machine on the road. He's taking his own compression sleeve on the road. He's, you know, he has a pillow that was like specifically designed for his head and shoulders and all these things. And like, so Otani's essential things are basically, you know, physical maintenance tools, um, which, you know, it's just, it makes me think about, you know, the way he performs and the things that players have access to. But like, I also don't think that most players are taking portable ice machines on the road and compression sleeves. And, you know, I, I said this to someone the other day and he was like, well, you know, but I also don't have to do both jobs. Like he just literally has less time in his yeah. day. But, um, you know, I, the idea that like 
the the energy and effort and tools that Shohei Otani has to be Shohei Otani for as remarkable as that is 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 pretty fascinating to me I think and I'm you know I'm curious Mike like did you think that this was going to be possible for someone to do what Otani has done if anybody tells you they thought that they would see this then they are they are lying to you <laughs> because it is almost impossible I've seen him do it and I still barely even believe that he's doing it you know and unless he gets hurt I can't imagine he won't do it again and I know that we like to think okay this is like the first of many there's going to be more two-way players and I'm sure I'm sure guys will try but it's so hard to do even one of the things he's doing right to do them both at the same time it's it's just words don't really describe it and then you think about the phenomenon he's become like obviously everything he does on the field is incredible right but everybody who has talked to him or spoken to him is like hey this guy is not only like an incredible baseball player you know he's interesting he's handsome he's funny he's like everything you want a baseball ambassador to be obviously he appeals to a global audience not just an english-speaking audience and to have all of that in one package i kind of feel like that part of it doesn't get talked about enough like he, I don't remember exactly when, but at some point in his youth, he wrote like a list of to-dos for his life, basically describing what has happened. And <laughs> it's hard to think of anybody who could love baseball more than a guy who would do that and then accomplish it, you know, mm-hmm. on the biggest stage. And what he's done is so impressive that I'm like, I'm this close to no longer being annoyed that the Angels can't get Mike Trout into the playoffs and being more annoyed they can't get Shohei Otani into the playoffs. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you said mm-hmm. it because I wasn't, going to go there as mm-hmm. listen I'm a, I'm a New Yorker that lives in LA so I don't like to say things like wouldn't it be better for the sport if Shohei Otani was on a marquee team but wouldn't it be better for the sport if Shohei Otani was like <laughs> on a marquee team wouldn't that be great you know it should be a marquee team right like you know I know I know Anaheim's not LA I understand but like it's still Southern California it's still with Mike Trout I sort of wonder how many teams you need to expand the playoffs by to ensure they'll get in. Cause I'm not, I'm not sure this year has done it to be honest. I don't think I would pick them right now. And that just makes me so sad because we're, we're running out of time and it's not just the playoffs. I realized this the other day, we talk about how Trout hasn't been to the playoffs since 2014 and how that stinks. They haven't been over 500 since 2015. <laughs> like, what are you doing? I mean, that is truly nuts. Come truly on. insane. A, a perfect transition to, uh, to my final question um, to, you know, we're, we're heading into opening day. Uh, what are some things to look out for, uh, from your perspective, uh, as we head into this new season? Well, I think the first thing I want to see over the first couple of weeks is just how everyone has, um, reacted to the weird off season, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that the rosters are a little larger, which is how you can have abominations like a 16 man pitching staff. <laughs> you know, so I want to know how deep guys are going to go. I want to know how long it's going to take them to get built up. You know what I'm really interested in? And um, I, I'm actually going to defer to Lindsay on this because you're talking to guys in person a lot more than I am. For how many years have we heard uh, guy, uh, players say spring training's too long, spring training's too long, right? But it's usually the hitters saying that. They're like, we don't need all this time. Give me three or four weeks and we'll be fine. And the pitchers need more time. And I'll be really fascinated to know if now that that has happened, if the hitters actually believe that. And they're like, hey, this is great. We'll have to do this every year. And the pitchers get all upset because they're they're not built up. I'm just speculating. I don't know if that's what will happen. But I would really uh, enjoy hearing guys talk about that. You know, So just like on an overall basis, that's the number one thing I'm looking at. Number two, even though I live in New York, I'm not a Mets fan. I'm a, I actually grew up a Dodgers fan. But 
I still want to know what's going to happen with the Mets because uh, DeGrom is hurt. Scherzer's kind of hurt. And that team's really old. Like they were risky even when those guys are healthy. And if it doesn't go well, and I feel like it might not, what does that look like with that payroll and that manager and that roster if they got off to a lousy start because Chris Bassett, no disrespect, I like him very much, is your ace. What does that look like? It looks like another lost Mets season, which (laughs) uh, is a thing that I think Mets fans are acclimated to over the last 18 to 20-ish years. Hmm. Uh, He is Mike Petriello, MLB.com senior writer and co-host of Ballpark Dimensions. Mike, uh, this was really fantastic. Thank you for joining us. This was super fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. In the 1970s, the percent of MLB players who were black was about 20 percent. That has declined to somewhere around 8 percent right about now. Part of the reason for that is the dwindling relationship between the African-American community and the sport of baseball. Football and basketball have stronger connections and have for the past several decades. Some of the factors for that trend are, are well known or things that people talk about. Uh, However, according to Jesse Washington of ESPN's Undefeated, it's not just participation that's dwindling. It's about the bond between the sport and the culture. Jesse, welcome to Take Line. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, So you've been working on an article that aims to take stock of the relationship between the black community and baseball. Um, What have you found and anything that has surprised you? Yeah, what surprised me first was that I had to take stock of my own relationship with it. And I looked up when they gave me this this task and I was like, wow, I don't care about baseball anymore. (laughs) When did that happen? I grew up playing baseball. You know, I'm an older gentleman of a early hip hop vintage, uh, born in 1969. And I grew up loving baseball, playing baseball all the way through high school, watching on television, rooting for the Mets with Doc Gooden and Daryl mm. Strawberry rooting for the Yankees with, with Reggie and Willie Randolph and Dave Winfield. There were a lot of black ball players that I really admired and, and was fans of, and they were cool to me. And at some point, you know, fast forward to now, I couldn't even tell you who won the World Series last year. So uh, how did that happen? That's the first thing that surprised me. And once I started to dive into those reasons, I started to get to some answers. The big answer to me is that you can add the lessening influence of baseball and black culture. You could blame it on hip hop. That's my headline. And <laughs> add it to the list of things that you could blame hip hop for. You know, the crumbling of everything that's sacred to black people is all hip hop's fault, including baseball. But in all seriousness, about the time when participation and interest in the black community started to wane, hip hop was on its early uh, trajectory of ascendancy. 
And there's a lot that happened in between then, and that's what we dive into in the show. So when would you say that, we talking like late 80s, early yep. 90s, the, as uh, hip-hop started to move into, you know, uh, a more West Coast-inflected sound, would you say it's about then? Is And is it about, you know, when you were saying this, I suddenly realized I can't remember the last time I heard a MLB player referenced in a rap lyric. I can't actually remember the last time it happened. Which is a shame. <laughs> Which is a shame, you know? I mean, um, the only one that comes to mind for me is from A Tribe Called Quest, you know? Got the scrawny legs, but I move like Lou Brock with speed, um, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah, man, it's not, you know, like, it, I do think it is the time period that you reference, Jason. You know, it's about the late 80s and the early 90s. And there was a moment when the the bomb was strong. I mean, number one, let's just state the fact that hip hop is the reason why you and so many millions of other Americans are wearing their hats backwards right now. We invented that, you know? And Ken Griffey was the one who sort of really made it super hot. Ken Griffey was hip hop. Ken Griffey had a shoe that was blazing in the hood, you know? At the Griffey's. When's the last time that you heard a baseball player's shoe referenced as the anythings except the I don't want those? You know what I'm saying? Like the Griffies were hot. So that time period, things were good. And then the culture somehow got attached. When I say the culture, I mean, you know, hip hop and everything that sort of springs around a black youth culture. Um, the culture latched on to basketball and left baseball behind. And it's pretty fascinating how that happened. I should note, um, Kanye West has the song Barry Bonds from oh. 2007, which is now 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a great point. That's that is a, that's that's a, a great, great point. point. You know, just, just, just right. saying that had me had me slowly crawling into my grave mm -hmm. saying 15 <laughs> yeah, years. Just just before Barry Bonds was, you know, kicked out of the sport, um, Kanye West wrote a song about him. So, you know, at least there's that, I guess. Is that helping? Is that helping us? I'm not sure with the, where everywhere Kanye is right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not quite sure how the math shakes out on that one. Uh, 15, 15 years in retrospect, but you know. And that was on a good Kanye album too. Mm -hmm. So, so we're gonna mm -hmm. say that that's legit. We're gonna count it because that was a good Kanye album. <laughs> it was it was a good Kanye album. It was a it was a good Barry Bonds time. Um, I guess we'll take that one. You know what? I'm going to, I mean, maybe uh, maybe them kicking Barry Bonds out of baseball is is part of the problem, you know what I'm saying? Or blacklisting right. him or, or or sending him out to pasture before he was ready. You know, maybe that, you know, maybe if they would let Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame, black people would start watching baseball again. You know, Jesse, with the with the high cost of, of playing and pursuing baseball as a career, taking a toll on the participation of young black players and African-Americans in baseball, how effective do you believe Major League Baseball's programs like RBI or the Hank Aaron Invitational have been towards mitigating, you know, that issue? And what else do you think that they should be doing? Yeah, I think MLB has done a really good job. I think that they're putting a lot of resources into it and it's working to a certain extent. And next week I'm going to be going and watching a young kid play. Um, his name is Kyle Johnson. He's in Virginia. Left-handed heat, right-handed banger of a bat committed to play baseball at Duke. And I'm going to go talk to him. You know, he, he's in Loudoun County, uh, Virginia. Shout to Kyle. Um, and sort of get into the mix of a young black ball player. He was a participant in a lot of these programs. Uh, and that's not the reason he played or didn't give him the ability to play. But it, what it did was affirm, okay, you know, 
I'm a young black kid who plays baseball. Yes, there are hundreds of others and probably thousands of others like me out there and really give them a good environment to come up in. So I think that they've done a great job, but I'm going to push back a little bit on the, the commonly accepted wisdom that access and cost is the barrier for black kids to get involved with baseball. Because last I checked, you needed a whole lot of equipment to play football. And that ain't stopping us anywhere. You needed a big old field to play football and shoulder pads and helmets and cleats. And I don't know about a $400 bat, but you know, uh, there's similar cost barriers. We have a basketball family. A summer of AAU ain't cheap. You know what I mean? Mm. And families are more than willing, you know, families pay thousands of dollars up into the five figure sums to let their kids, you know, to encourage their kids to play basketball. So I think that the cost is a factor, Lindsay. I think that MLB has done a good job and is aware of it and is really trying to expand access to the game. But I think that there's a deeper cultural reason behind it that even with all the access, a lot of the kids are just choosing to do something else. For example, I live in the Pittsburgh area. Josh Gibson, the what, probably the greatest home run hitter of all time. Mm-hmm. His grandson, Sean Gibson, is here, has a foundation, does a lot of baseball stuff. They had a league for a while, but he said, Jess, we had to shut the league down because kids don't want to play baseball in the spring. They wanted to do the spring football. They wanted to do seven on seven. And, and it was hard for us to get a commitment over these other sports, even though we had the access and it was free. So there's more to it there, Lindsay, than just the, the cost and the access. You mentioned your heyday with baseball and and uh, rooting for both the Mets and the Yankees, which I guess I need you to unpack somehow <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, you, yeah. Yeah. Big up for calling me on that. I get it. And here's the reason. Um, because I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, about an hour and a half, maybe uh-huh. two outside of New York City. And so you, it wasn't like I was in Brooklyn or in Queens or in mm. the Bronx or, you know, or Manhattan. So I didn't really have to, like, you know, worry about that type of uh, diehard type of situation. Um, and also, you know what I think it was? Um, I was looking for the black players and the black players that I read about in Sports Illustrated. You know, we didn't we didn't have a TV in our house, so I had to actually read stuff. So those names that I, were in the newspaper and stuff like that, I was intrigued by that. And, and, and so I think that I gravitated more toward the players than I did to the actual teams. In your heyday of your relationship with baseball, what was it that you talk about, like loving the black players, specifically like Straw from the Mets, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden. Um, what was that relationship like at the time? And can you remember like, what was it that attracted you that caught your eye and uh, and what's missing from that equation now like when i think about you know i was as a kid when the mets were in their heyday the 80s mets were in their heyday but what i remember was there was so much cultural cachet that that team had it was weird you know because like you know mets and yankees like most of the Mets' influence was like Queens and Long Island, and the Yankees just uh, held all of uh, New York City other than Queens pretty strong. But, you know, on TV, uh, there were there were Mets players like in Marvel comic books at the time. Like you, they would mention the winning streak that the Mets were on in the X-Men. Like there was just like a lot of cachet. Um so what was it that – and that was how I became acclimated to that team. So what what, what was it that got you – looking at these players and looking at those teams. 
Yeah, Jason, it was a lot of the things that you mentioned. And, and you know, they had a presence. The ball players had a presence that went beyond just the game. You know, Doc, we heard about Doc when he was still in the minor leagues. Yo, there's this young brother coming up. He's throwing heat. And then he got up in his rookie year. He was mowing cats down. He was like unhittable his rookie year out the gate. And he was a couple years older than me. He was 19, you know, if I remember correctly. And then Daryl Strawberry, he had like, he was from LA and he had like, he, you know, it's a cliche and it's the kids' words. And then, you know, us in the media have taken it, ruined it. But, but Daryl Strawberry had swag. First of all, his name was Strawberry. You know what I'm saying? And it just the way he waggled the bat, he was hitting home runs. And so it's not that the players today don't have that, but that was presented to me as a young black kid in a very attractive way. Like, and I played baseball, played in little league, played in high school, and I wanted to imitate those guys. Oh, let me see how they wear their socks. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna wear my socks that way. Yeah, that looks cool. Um, I didn't go so far as the Jerry Curl, Doc Gooden, but uh, you know, you know, like. <laughs> I was, you, you know, I looked up to them and, and I related to them because, you know, a lot of it was the way they were presented to me in the media, but it was a totally different media environment that then in terms of the way that I could even have access to information. And so all that has changed to a huge extent today. Where do you think the separation began? You know, you, you noted that you feel the divide began kind of with the rise of hip hop and whatnot. And I'm curious if you could sort of elaborate on what you found on how maybe those um, different cultural trajectories um, came to be. Yeah. So we interviewed, we interviewed Chuck D for our podcast mm. and he, you know, Chuck D is famous. You know, he had the, he's a, uh, the, the pirate's hat with the P on it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so what we found was that in the early parts of hip hop, we took certain baseball things and made them iconic and made them hip hop. And then one of the things that hip hop made iconic quickly was sneakers. And then it was specifically, it was, or not specifically, but primarily it was basketball sneakers. And there was this whole thing, you know, hip hop came from New York City and then came from other big cities and basketball in New York City are, you know, historically and inseparably connected. And so the culture of hip hop was intertwined with the culture of basketball from the beginning. And, and so when you start going down that route and then the popularity of sneakers exploded and, and sneakers is another thing that hip hop just made totally worldwide global culture when before quick rabbit hole and I'll come right back to this point but I remember when I used to wear sneakers with my suits and people used to point and gawk like like my my straight lace work colleagues be like yo what's wrong with you have you ever like <laughs> yo you you don't wear suits a lot do you I'm like no I do I'm just making a point back up off me and now it's like my grandpa now that's wearing, the thing yeah they you do know that. now that's, now the, that's thing. the thing now yeah right. so sneakers you know uh hip-hop started really uh identify more basketball and then of course jordan came and he was the most transcendent athlete and the popularity of basketball you know became overwhelming and then ai came in the mid late 90s and ai just made basketball and uh forced you know it's funny baseball might be right now where the nba was in terms of expressing yourself and not being a formist they tried to snuff ai's individuality out mm -hmm. 
You know, all you young kids out there, there was a hoop magazine, the official NBA magazine, a magazine, by the way, is something <laughs> with paper that you open and you read. <laughs> it's how we used to get information before Instagram. And, and they, they had AI on the cover of the official NBA magazine. They airbrushed out his tattoos. They are worried about the image. And so it reminds me of how baseball is uncomfortable with players of color, a lot of our Latino brothers, and it, uncomfortable with them expressing themselves. Oh, the hair. Like, do the Yankees still have a hair rule? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes they do. Like, yo, like, yo. I mean, and so, so it's a long way of answering your question. So I'll, I'll finish by just saying the culture of hip hop and basketball, basketball, took it in and, and you know, with Jordan and then AI and it represented hip hop and they merged. And then that's what all the young kids gravitated to. This makes me think of, you know, something related. And I'm wondering if I can run just some thoughts by you. So, you you know, you mentioned Chuck D and the Pirates hat and then, but it was Spike Lee who originally contacted New Era and said, I want a Yankees hat, but I want it red. And I believe red leather. Uh, and New Era had to go and get approval from the Yankees and MLB and everything. And basically, you know, the story is that because of Spike Lee, we have a very broad variety of baseball hats. You know, you can buy a Yankees hat in pretty much any color. Um, and I don't think most people know that you trace that back to Spike Lee. But then also, you know, you have things like Jay-Z rapping. I made the Yankees hat more famous than the Yankee can. And the Yankees and the Dodgers particularly their hats for at least a period or even now, you know, are sort of a part of streetwear culture. But then, you know, you say you got a lot of weird looks for wearing suits with sneakers. I mean, I'm me and I show up to the ballpark in a like frilly dress and Air Force Ones every day. And then, <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, there's a number of players who have Jordan deals, all black players, but you have all, a wide variety of players wearing, you know, interesting sneakers and cleats on the field now. And so I'm, Curious, like, if you have any thoughts on the way that, you know, things like, you know, hats or even sneakers becoming more of a mainstream thing taken out of, you know, the idea of hip hop culture or, or black culture, if that you think has maybe diluted the way that that can have an impact. Man, thank you for asking, because the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer Here's is yes. me. And, yeah. and by the way, Lindsay, I didn't know that Spike is is the reason why I could get, you know, a grade out you know, uh, I believe that is yeah. the case. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's I believe dope. that's the case. I, be, I believe it, you know? So, so yeah, man, like if everybody's, you know, how, you know, I mean, I'm a sneaker guy, you know, but I'm just trying to figure out how a sneaker can be hot if everybody's wearing it, you know, <laughs> or if, if, you know, people who aren't cool are wearing the sneaker, how can that sneaker still be hot? Um, but it's, a, you know, I'm trying not to, you know what I'm saying? Like, and even me, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I got kids 22, 18, 14. Wow. And, and, and then I'll be like, yeah, you know, you think that sneaker's hot. Everybody got that sneaker. I got sneakers on and nobody got in this whole place. And they'd be like, no, dad, that's because nobody wants those. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I definitely, young people rock on, do your thing. But these iconic hip hop has become, I've seen it gone from being hated in terms of hip hop to being embraced as mainstream. And I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, isn't that what we wanted? Weren't we upset when people said, oh, that's not music? You know, but then on the other hand, uh, I feel a bit gentrified. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is has some overlap with these totems of authenticity that hip hop created 
the hats, the sneakers, you know, um, the jerseys, you know, and things like that, that have become, uh, you know, appropriated may be too strong a word, but widely appreciated. How about that? So, um, so, you know, uh, and as far as now, if you're wearing Air Force Ones, Lindsay, with, with a frilly dress, that's hip hop. That's hip hop. And I, I mean, and I support that. I should say I was not really into sneakers in any way until I started covering baseball. Then I had to go into the clubhouse and see like the Jordan brand guys getting, you know, the Dior ones for free all the time or whatever. <laughs> and so I'm just like, and and it's interesting because like, I very much care about presentation and fashion and style and yeah. whatnot. And you don't really think of like ball players that way, but like, you know, they have a lot of money and they have sponsorships and they get cool stuff. And I don't always have access to it, but if it's like, you know, well, I see, you know, these guys rocking a pair of Jordan threes that I really love, like maybe I'll buy myself a new pair of fives. And so um, the reason I am that person is because I'm confronted by it all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I feel, I feel uh, peer pressure if I'm, if I'm in a pro clubhouse, as far as like, you can judge me for this, but I'm going to judge people by what they're wearing on their feet. And so I feel judged by what's on my feet too. So if I'm in that, you know, I see, I see pro ball players looking to see what I'm wearing on my feet. And then that may or may not affect the quality or the access of the subsequent interview, but it's a factor that we think about. <laughs> it's, you know? it's a factor. I mean, a really proud moment for me was in 2019. I was standing in the very crowded, very cramped uh, visiting clubhouse at Fenway Park and Cameron Maven shouts across the room. Hey, Lindsay, did you see the sneakers this guy's got on? And he's got some like <laughs> floral monstrosities, things that I would absolutely 100% wear. And I was like, good catch, man. You know, thanks. <laughs> so. You're known. You're, they know you out there in them streets. That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, you know, how can, you know, uh, wearing your baseball hat has gone from being the epitome of rebelliousness and cool when Ken Griffey did it, a genre-defying act to, you know, to whatever it is right now, which is not cool. And so maybe baseball has to come up with something else or something, some some transcendent personality has to come along and do something really radical style-wise in order to get that heat back because they don't have it right hmm. now. Something I've been thinking about is I think any medium, anytime a player can express themselves, that is intriguing. That is magnetic. That's why we watch sports, no matter what it is. And it seems to me that the, you know, baseball is, is more, uh, linked to the concept of unwritten rules than I think any of our major sports. Does it feel like the, those kind of unwritten rules are, are in conflict with the idea of players expressing themselves on the field in a way that maybe could drive, drive interest? And I understand why, because, you know, you show a guy up who can throw a baseball 100 miles per hour at your face, maybe you don't want to do that. But at the same time, it feels like those uh, that that instinct for kind of like conservatism is pumping the brakes on what could be a, a, a really fun way to hype the sport. You're 100 percent right. And that's something that our reporting also revealed. You know, we asked a lot of people about that. We asked Tim Anderson about that, you know, and he's someone who's been vocal about his experiences coming up and feeling oppressed, not from a racial uh, perspective, but from just expressing himself as a person and as an athlete. And, you know, hip hop is something that really was a vehicle for the expression of young Black and Latino youth. That's how it was born. 
And that trend, you know, planted itself into a lot into basketball. And the expression uh, of our basketball players is at an all-time high right now. I mean, I did a piece a couple years ago just about hair on the basketball court and the variety of hairstyles of which all of uh, them I am jealous. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and it's just so for baseball to have a, a team that won't allow you to have long hair, facial hair, and then there's all these things about how fast or slow you can run around the bases and how far you can toss the bat after you smack a home run. It's just, it does cut down on the joy and it it cuts against youth culture right now. And it's, it's too, it's too uh, bland and young people ain't going out like that. So they're not interested. And what's going to catch their attention now is the bat flips, which I understand they are loosening up a little bit, and there's some of them, you know, and and all these other ways of of uh, of getting down that, you know, baseball is is really grappling with whether or not to allow. Lindsay, what would happen if Aaron Judge is just like, I'm growing it out, I'm growing a beard, I'm growing it out, I'm dropping the back past the past the neckline, like I'm doing it, and I don't care who, what Brian Cashman or anybody else has to say. What would they do? Um, I can say pretty confidently that Judge is not the person who would do it. (laughs) But he's Um, the guy that would need to do it to, like, make it happen, you know? I I don't know. You know, I mean, there was this issue a few years ago when a prospect, Clint Frazier, showed up and his hair was too long. And then he thought that he was in compliance. He had to cut it. And then CeCe Sabathia, (laughs) like you know, uh, wore like a sort of a beard during like a spring training game to avenge him. You know, I mean, I I think people kind of, I I don't know. I cannot tell how much of a big deal it is, but it is so bizarre um, to have to cover transactions all the time and have players show up in the clubhouse the day after they're acquired by the Yankees. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a pretty big baseball nerd, you know, like I can, I can probably recognize most players uh, in baseball, you know, with some context because I'm a sicko. Uh, and then they show up and they don't have, they don't have beards. They look insane. Uh, it's just, it's very, I, I don't know who is the person to break the cycle or how it would happen. I don't even know how much really the organization totally cares about it you know as a whole you know like I don't I don't think Aaron Boone is sitting there telling them you know young men keep your hair in compliance that's just you know it's, it's an organizational <laughs> rule um I don't I don't think Boone is going to be the guy who's like cracking down on it but it's it's definitely it's it's bizarre um you know and I, I the thing for me is like I just kind of feel bad because like these guys are on like TV every single night and like cameras are so good now and like you have to worry about your performance but then if you're like out there looking like this like weirdo with a shaved face and you don't like it and you don't you don't get a choice and you're on TV 162 nights you know per summer um yeah we need somebody to fight the power some 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 sort of superstar you know and then finally, Jesse, uh, your pod is coming out as part of uh, ESPN's package for the 75th anniversary of uh, Jackie Robinson. What do you think? This is an impossible question, but what do you think? What do you think uh, Jackie would think of the state of MLB today? Yeah, that's something that we asked a lot of people. 
you know, in and around baseball. And by far, I agree with their answer. He'd be disappointed. You know, when when Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball, baseball and Black America had a tremendously close relationship. It was a game that we loved and played and enjoyed and excelled at. And the Negro Leagues are one of the most incredible examples of Black entrepreneurship and achievement in American history. And the Negro Leagues had everything that the NBA has right now, nicknames, style, legends, and all the jazz musicians who were the coolest dudes in black culture at the time hung out with the black ball players who were the coolest dudes in, in black culture. Same way all the rappers in the NBA dudes hang out. The same way you see all the rappers on the sidelines at, at, at courtside at the NBA game, you would see all the, the, the best jazz musicians in the world at a baseball game you know, at the Kansas City Monarchs or the, you know, the Pittsburgh Crawfords or something like that. And so I think that Jackie would be disappointed because um, he sacrificed for us to have access to this and then it has fallen by the wayside. But I do think he would be encouraged by the fact that MLB knows that there's an issue and is really putting a lot of resources into it. And, and that there are a lot of tremendous black ball players now coming up and that and, and we still have a, a viable presence in the sport. And, uh, and I mean, hey, one of the best players in the bigs, his name is Mookie. And it don't get yeah. any more blacker than that. You know, <laughs> everybody has a Mookie around their way. Shout to Sean Gibson. <laughs> so, you know, I think he would be disappointed, but I don't think he would despair is my answer. He is Jesse Washington of ESPN's The Undefeated. Jesse, thanks so much for joining Take Line. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Drawer. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.